Yep, she became a director despite that guy. And his name was Martin Scorsese. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Hi, and welcome to episode of Cinenation. My name is Brandon Sparks. And I'm Thomas Horton. And here on Cinenation, we discuss film genres and the tropes and stories within them. But we also discuss directors. And this month, we have been talking about female filmmakers. Every episode, we've been talking about a different female filmmaker. And... This episode is the final episode of our month-long series. Um, so yeah, because we we did this because we tend to sometimes pick a lot of male-dominated male a lot of male-dominated genres or talk a lot about male directors. And this month we thought there was a lot of female filmmakers we love and we wanted to kind of showcase. Um, and they don't always fit into genre categories, or in some cases they are genres in themselves, like many other male directors. Um, but yeah, today is someone who kind of doesn't really have a specific thing. I guess she's, she's a comedy director, mm-hmm. I guess you would say. Um, before we dive into her, Thomas, what have, uh, what have we kind of talked about this month? Give everyone like a recap of what we talked about. Yeah, we, well, we've gone into kind of like why we don't see a lot of female filmmakers necessarily kind of being in a consistent genre. And and. A lot of it has to do with just they aren't given the opportunities to shape their portfolio in a way that that male filmmakers are. They often aren't given carte blanche by the studios to kind of make whatever they want. They have to take projects that come to them. And if they do take the time, like we've said with Deborah Granick, to actually make their films independently the way they want to be made, mm-hmm. it takes a while, which is why she yeah. only has three features in her career. Uh, Mm -hmm. despite being very successful features Um, we've also talked about just kind of the inequality as far as the way female directors are treated by the studio whether it comes to uh, the way they're kind of they tend to get steamrolled in post yeah Uh, and and even going back to uh, last month with Julie Taymor if you stand up for yourselves and like don't let yourself be steamrolled in post then you get smeared in the press for being a diva um but uh with karen kusama we talked a little bit about both getting steamrolled in post and then getting put into quote-unquote movie jail where you have to kind of sit and wait and be be a good quiet team player until the studio finally decides you're worthy of another project and that's a consistent thing that happens a lot of times and and also like you're talking about the with Deborah Grant about the amount of movies it take, it takes a while for her to get a movie off the ground. I mean, even when we talked about Nancy Myers, who's someone that she takes her time uh, a lot because she kind of she is the writer director of all of her stuff, and it takes her two years just to like write and ed- direct and edit a movie. And she only has like six films, and she direct she's directed for over twenty years. Yeah. Well, and something else I was thinking about this week, and, and we've we've kind of brought it up individually, but we haven't really kind of looked at the overall ties and I, I don't know what this means what this pattern means necessarily but uh all of these female filmmakers we talked about this month they're all like star makers yeah and um oftentimes for act for female actors for for actresses and it doesn't matter the interesting thing here is it, it doesn't really matter what the profile of the film is you know it can be yeah something you know indie with a bunch of sundance buzz that flopped post sundance like like girl fight bringing michelle rodriguez forward or it can be kind of an oscars darling like winter's bone mm-hmm. or it can be you know Lindsay lohan in parent trap 
but it's kind of wild and, and we'll see a lot of it this week that uh, there, there's something about these filmmakers specifically in their casting process like they there have been so many careers launched in the movies we've covered this month that's kind of crazy yeah and 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 we don't tend to like i mean we did a whole month on tony scott and peter weir and like they they did i mean i don't know if tony scott really launched i mean tom cruise i guess you could say um but like a lot of them didn't like launch stars throughout we are a little bit early on with like mel gibson or whatever but it's like they all like the directors have like one or two maybe. But when you look at all these directors we've talked about, it's like, I mean, with Deborah Granick, it's three for three. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you look at say with with Amy Heckerling today, many of her movies are just with Fast Times at Ridgemont High, not one star, but like a plethora of of actors and actresses that essentially made were given careers after this movie. Yeah. Um, so so yeah it, it has an interesting point to bring up and it, and it happens a lot i mean i think of what i put we put on instagram recently of like the penny marshall movies of just like doing like filmmaker filmographies and looking at say a league of their own uh and how tom hanks like not even just leave around big as well is that she kind of uh launches tom hanks into the stratosphere with two movies mm-hmm. like she makes him a superstar or makes him a star with big has a weird kind of career like downward turn after big and then like catapult him again uh after with the league of their own and then he just goes on this massive run yeah but yeah so today we're talking about amy heckerling and this was one of your picks thomas Mm -hmm. and so why did you feel like amy heckerling is someone we should be talking about i just i think she's had a very interesting career she's someone who like any filmmaker male or female would be lucky to have two movies as iconic as yeah fast times at ridgemont high and clueless under their belt and she's she's had like other films that i think have kind of flown under the radar she's got and and deserve more recognition she's got other films that were very successful uh financially but have kind of been forgotten as we've gone along and then as we'll see she's even someone with as much promise and and who has delivered as much as her sometimes still gets screwed over by uh, the studio system so yeah um but but she's she's someone who especially early on was breaking into a genre that that felt very male dominated which was like teen comedies and i think the perspective she brought to it is a reason why those her two teen comedies specifically have endured for so long is because it it, it is it's the genre needed i mean john hughes was obviously a very influential voice but but i think she's that uh female side of that and yeah. and it's a and she had and we'll talk about this more as we go but but she gave a perspective to the teen genre that i think kept it alive for a lot longer than it she kept it from dying off after john hughes stopped doing high school movies yeah because hughes we talked about hughes uh previously about a year ago with all his stuff and like hughes kind of stops doing teen comedies after the 80s like it just kind of mm-hmm. becomes like he does basically versions of home alone in some way of like all like kid movies and family films and clueless it's that teen that 90s teen comedy which i think everyone then tries to replicate after after mm-hmm. clueless exactly um uh, and trying to find someone like a like a, a, a young star like Alicia Silverstone or whoever. Not many people can say they had two movies that defined kind of two different eras mm-hmm. of like for teens. Like you can get one, you never really just get two. 
And when you think of like 90s, I can tell you right now, Clueless is probably one of the most 90s films out there in mm. terms of style, in terms of music, in terms of all that. And then Fast Times is kind of one of the more honest 80s portrayal. Like, yeah. I think that's the the, the thing we, I mean, we'll talk about when we get to Fast Times more. But like, it, it's always kind of going to draw comparisons to John Hughes, but there's something a little bit more, I don't know, Fast Times is a very interesting structure to it. And it has a very interesting authenticity that Hughes films do have authenticity, but it's just different, if that makes mm. sense. And there's a yeah. different focus to it. So, yeah. So, yeah, this is one that Heckerling's why I know you want to talk about for a while. Mm -hmm. I feel like I feel like two years. I feel like it's been brought <laughs> up for a while. I feel like it was like it was Peter Weir and Amy Heckerling were the two that were like, wow, we finally did it. We, we finally it. did both of them this year. It took a while. We finally here. Um, so, yeah. So, Thomas, tell me about Amy Heckerling and her early beginnings uh, as, a, as a filmmaker and as a person and everything. So Amy Heckerling was uh, raised in the Bronx by two working parents. She was a latchkey kid, and she said she spent a lot of time watching TV, home alone, waiting for her parents to come home from work. And she found a particular fondness in that time for 1930s movies, <laughs> uh, specifically James Cagney films. Um, okay. She said when she was like four, her favorite movie was, um, oh, it's... <laughs> Uh, it's not what well, angels with dirty faces is the right one i always angels, get mixed up yeah. with what is it angels with filthy souls or whatever <laughs> yeah yeah from home alone yeah, yeah. Angels, um, dirty faces. angels with dirty faces was her favorite movie when she was like four and she said her mom came home one day and she was like bawling because james cagney was going to the electric chair and her mom was like why are you crying and she's like she like she was like i didn't understand what the electric chair was i just knew this movie wanted me to feel sad so i, I was being sad mm -hmm. for james cagney but uh, yeah, so she showed a huge affinity for the arts at a young age and um, applied and was accepted to the High School of Art and Design in Manhattan. Um, she says on her first day of school, every student was asked to write down what job they aspired to in the arts and like why they were at this school. And she had written down that she wanted to be a writer and comic artist for Mad Magazine. But the boy who went right before her said he wanted to be a movie director. And um this is this is a quote from her. She says, I was really annoyed because I thought that if an idiot like that guy could say he wanted to be a director, then so could I. And certainly I should be a director more than he should. It had never occurred to me that that was a job possibility. But he put the thought in my head because until then, I would never have thought of saying that I wanted to do that. It didn't seem to be one of the jobs in this world that could be open to someone like me. So, so thank, she, thanks to that guy. Yep, she became a director despite <laughs> that guy. Just to, and just his like, name was Martin Scorsese. I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, it's like great where it's just like, you know what? I'm going to show that dude. Yep. That's how it feels like. I'm going to show that dude that I'm a better director than him. So I'm going to say I want to be a director. Yep. After high school, she enrolled at... Probably Tish. Tish. Was that three for four out of this out of Three this for month? four out of this month. Yeah. Kusama, Granik, and, and her. And then, I mean, I, and Myers was, I think... I think, well, she lived a little bit in New York, I believe. So, um, yeah. So Heckerling enrolled at Tisch in 1970, um, where she met a very close friend and classmate, Martin Brest. They were oh, yeah. very, very close friends during school. Beverly Hills Cop and Midnight Run. Yeah. She said due to the heavy influence of her love of classical Hollywood cinema, most of her undergrad film projects were 1930s style musicals. Uh, <laughs> and she notes she uh, really kind of stuck out with her classmates because everyone else was going for that post watergate style of um yeah paranoid kind of thriller conspiracy paranoia films alan pakula movies yeah exactly 
Um, but in their last year of undergrad, Brest applied to AFI and encouraged Heckerling to as well. Uh, and they ended up both accepted and moved out to LA to study at AFI. At AFI, Heckerling uh, wrote and directed a short film called Getting It Over With about a woman turning 20 who's determined to lose her virginity before her birthday night ends. And that movie really got her a lot of attention around town. She had a lot of meetings. And um, within a few months of graduating AFI, Tom Mount, the president of Universal, called her and said, we want you to come direct something for us. You can wow. just look through what we've got. Yeah, that's back That's back in the day when they did that more. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, we like your short. It's like, that's what happened with Spielberg. It was like, oh, we like your short. We're going to sign you to a big deal of direct TV. And it's like, oh, okay, cool. I'm 20. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, um, yeah. So they basically just kind of handed her their working slate of scripts and um, specifically ones that were kind of aimed at young people based off of what they enjoyed about uh, getting it over with. And um, she came across a feature script by Cameron Crowe based on his own nonfiction book, Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Um, She says by this point, the script had been reworked heavily by the studio. And so she went back and just read Crowe's book. And came back to the studio and said, I'll sign on to this, but you got to bring Crow back. And he and I are going to tear this thing down and start it back, build it back up again. So that brings us to her first film, uh, 1982's Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Yeah. So the only thing that Heckerling and Crow worked really well together in kind of bringing his. So if anyone's not familiar, his Crow's original book was actually an expansion of a piece he was doing while he was a writer for rolling stone magazine where he went undercover as a high school student because as we as we covered on our almost famous episode a few months ago he was very young so um he he went to a high school in uh, los angeles and kind of wrote this expose for rolling stone ended up expanding it into a nonfiction book so the two of them collaborated on bringing kind of the realities of that book to the script uh, Heckerling says the only thing she and Crow really disagreed on was the soundtrack. Crow had written in most of his <laughs> musical taste. She said there were a lot of eagles in the soundtrack. <laughs> and um, she told him, absolutely not. It has to be as current as possible if it's yeah. going to speak to these kids. That's fair. He does get one eagle song in there, but it's a cover from the school band. At oh, the yeah, dance. yeah, yeah. Life in the Fast Lane. Uh, Jackson Brown's featured pretty heavily, so at least yeah, the, that's right, um, Crow. Yeah, yeah. At least the the Canyon sound is is still on there. <laughs> yeah, like we said, the casting for this film is famously prescient. Um, they while in the casting process, they discovered stars like Jennifer Jason Lee and Sean Penn, while also giving small first roles to actors like Nicolas Cage, billed as Nicholas Coppola at this point, uh, Forrest Whitaker, Eric Stoltz, and Anthony Edwards. Heckerling says she knew Penn was Spicoli as soon as he walked in to their audition. Um, she said it wasn't even that good of an audition. He just like his intensity. Yeah. Was, she was like, this is him. This is the kid. Mm-hmm. Um, Heckerling also had her mind set on an actor for, for the lead of Stacey Hamilton. Uh, but it was Ali Sheedy. Yeah. And when she came in to read, uh, Heckerling just thought she, she read as a little too old and she wanted uh-huh. somebody who really read as, 15 and naive and that's where jennifer jason lee came in so uh, we're at the, uh, this is the one i do know and maybe you will mention this but it's like i think uh sheedy was up for it and she was roommates with like eric stoltz or something it was friends mm-hmm. of eric stoltz and that's how eric stoltz found out about it and got to read for it i didn't i didn't see that one 
Yeah. But that, that won't more... be the first time that that happens for Hackerling. Well, um, we can talk about that later. Yeah. Um, yeah, the studio was fairly supportive throughout the production. Um, although she Hackerling says that kind of throughout the studio notes just kept coming back. Like, we don't know who the audience for this is going to be. <laughs> so any uh, any favorite scenes you want to well, touch on real quick? I mean, I can talk about a lot of scenes in this movie, but I will say with this movie that I, I like when I was watching it this time, I said, oh, this is like MASH, but a high school movie. Mm. Yeah, there's definitely something very Altman to it. It's very something Altman to it. There's this, when I thought of MASH, because MASH, the movie, is very much like vignettes of like, it's this kind of story and then this kind of story. And there's no there's no really big through line except just the events that occur throughout in a way that occasionally happen. But they're very Which like kind of contained. What I was going to say earlier when you said like that Fast Times feels different from a Hughes film is I think a Hughes film, even if it's something like Breakfast Club that's like all set in this room and everything, it still kind of has this. It still feels like a movie, you know, whereas this. Yeah, I, I don't know how they better could have captured like what crow was going for with this book like this all this this kind of feels like a documentary in the way that it, it just kind of like we, we're gonna let these characters live their lives and we're just gonna like see where they go we're not gonna fit it into you know necessarily like traditional plot structure or anything we're just gonna yeah. see how their lives go exactly i mean another comparison would probably be last picture show in a way mm-hmm. of how last picture show does a little bit of that like what what, what grabbed me is like it's like when all of a sudden, when all of a sudden it's christmas and you're like oh and we're like 30 minutes into the movie, but it was just the end of summer. It's like kind of mm. just so it's like kind of like we're like hopping throughout the year and kind of seeing specific moments, but not like not like we're not seeing every like we're not seeing Halloween. We're not seeing New Year's. It's not very like consistent like that. It's like, oh, now it's Christmas time and now it's them doing this or like, oh, it's been 20 minutes. We skipped like a month or whatever. And these two people haven't talked since then. Like Rat Rat and Stacy haven't talked since a certain amount of time. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, it really does have this Altman-esque quality to it where it's kind of jumping in and out. And in a way, too, to to jump later in terms of the comparison of a modern filmmaker that I think kind of has similar vibes as, Ger- as Greta Gerwig mm. of how she does her stuff with Lady Bird and Little Women of that kind of quality. She has a very similar quality of how she can jump from place to place. Uh, and I think, by the way, I think Gregor will come back up later in another movie we talk about later in the episode. <laughs> um, but like, yeah, it's like there is this quality where it's like we're just hopping in and out and just seeing where these people are in their lives at this point. And in some cases, they're like little contained stories like, oh, this is the football game sequence where Sean where Spicoli wrecks the car and they're uh turn into where it was the opposing team that did it to mm-hmm. Boris Whitaker's car <laughs> and now it's the whole bit where he he's going to basically like kill assassinate Lincoln uh mm. the high school they're going they're they're uh playing in the football game so it has this like this just vignette quality to it but in terms of his favorite scenes i mean anything with Spico- anything with Sean Penn mm. i mean and that's a a, a, a cop out but like anything with Sean Penn uh, as Spicoli, I mean, I love, I love their kind of first his, his first meeting with Ray Walston uh, as Mister Hand, and Mister their chemistry. To, I love their their back and forth together. Mm. Uh, with the like, yeah, when when Spicoli shows up late, he goes, oh yeah, I'm in this class. Like he's <laughs> like, oh, I get so lonely when the third tardy bell rings or whatever. Mister Hand says, Sean Penn has had an illustrious career as an actor, but. In my mind, he'll probably always be Spicoli. It's, that's the that's the thing. Yeah, and he he brings a, a depth to it that you don't get yes. in a lot of stoner characters. Like like you said, I with agree that, completely with that scene where he comes into the room. Like 
any any stoner actor could have played that whole scene as like stoned but like yeah. you can you can see the confusion going on and then when mr hand's like nice to him he's like oh okay cool yeah we're cool yeah. like this guy's great and then like <laughs> And it's like, hey, bud, what's your problem? And yeah. like, it's not, and, it's, and like, it's not said in like a comedic way. Does that make sense? It's mm. like it can be funny, but like Sean Penn is not playing it to be funny. Yeah, is the thing, and that's the key. Is that that's usually when a great comedic performance can happen, or like a memorable and like everlasting comedic performance is when the person is not actively trying to be funny. And lets mm-hmm. the kind of writing and direction take it from there, and the situation take it from there. And so Penn, ne- like Penn, like Penn's not someone you see as a comedian. So when he does this, he has great comedic chops in this scene because he just plays everything straight. This guy's been stoned since the third grade. Yes. Yeah, I'm registered in this class. What class? This is U.S. history. See the globe right there. Really? Hey. <laughs> May I come in? Oh, please. I get so lonely when I hear that third attendance bell oh, ring and all my kids are not here. Sorry I'm late. It's just like this new schedule is totally confusing. Yeah, I know that, dude. Mr. Spicoli. That's the name they gave me. Hey, you're ripping my car. Yeah. Hey, bud, what's your problem? No problem at all. I think you know where the front office is. You dick! What about you? Do you have a scene? I just, I think, it, it's more just like praising the, the like, I, you these characters you know. Yeah. And, and so I really love, you know, Judge Reinhold's whole journey. It's like the yeah the guy who just thinks he is the coolest kid in school and realizes how like tenuous that that status is you know it's just all it takes is like one rude guy at your work to just bring it all crashing down and um and and phoebe cates too is such a you you see her character and you're like oh i I went to high school with that girl like the (laughs) the, and, and you think it's cool like when you're when you're like 16 17 and they're dating like a 23 year old you're like wow that is yeah the cool she's the coolest and then you grow up and you're like that guy is taking advantage of a child <laughs> of a child yes well it's like and, but and also too with her like her character is and why i, I lash on this time is how like a lot of her character is like she's not she's like fabricating a few things yeah like yeah. talking about that older guy it's like oh yeah like yeah he's we're engaged and we're doing this and like i don't deal with these high school boys or whatever mm-hmm. like oh yeah we the part that kind of happens where they talk about it is like when um when jeff or jason lee asks like oh how long does uh how long does he last oh like 20 to 30 minutes or whatever and he goes she goes oh well, last time you said like 30 to like 40 minutes he goes oh did i Mm-hmm. oh yeah it, it depends sometimes it's 40 minutes too and it's just like she you realize just how like oh a lot of stuff she's just making up yeah so much of high school cool. so much of high school is posturing and, and her character yeah. and also um oh what's his name damone damone's character is the, the you know the kind of they're they're opposite it they're they're they really capture well like kind of what what the female posturing is all about in high school versus what the male posturing is yeah. all about. Yeah. Damone is, Damone is like a dude where like, he is very much like when he's talking to rat about like how to be around girls and like how to be suave and cool. And then you realize like in the end, like Damone is just as insecure 
as every other person in the movie uh or in high school he's insecure and uh immature and is in over his head a lot of things but his yeah and i think that's that makes for such a great journey for stacy and rat in this movie to both be the ones to discover that their friends are kind of full of shit not not in a way that it's like oh you shouldn't be friends with them anymore but in a way that like oh you thought these two people had it figured out and no one has it figured out it's high school like nobody knows what they're doing and you guys don't need to base yourselves off of what they tell you that's a good point because basically that's that what it is is that rat and and uh stacy are kind of like always trying to be like their best friends is that stacy's trying to be linda and rat is kind of trying to be more like damone but they realize that they are better when they're just being themselves together mm-hmm. like in the end like that's the whole ending at the when they're doing the kind of title cards uh which is very american graffiti-esque i feel like <laughs> Um, where it's like where they are, it's like, oh, Stacy and Rat have this passionate love affair, but they haven't gone all the way yet. When mm-hmm. like with Damone and Linda, it's like, oh, you gotta do it like pretty soon into it and like all this and like it's sex, sex it's all about sex when you're in a relationship and all that. Uh, but they realized that it was it was more like romance. And I think it was was it was it Pauline Kale that talks about how like that the like they're really just all after romance, but they think they're after sex at the end mm-hmm. of the day, like yeah. the characters. Um which I think is true. I think they're all after that. And I think someone like Damone is insecure and doesn't know how to deal with romance. Mm. Like that's the, I mean, another scene that I think is, or kind of plot line that I think is interesting, especially for the time is the abortion plot line. Yeah. Spoiler alert to fast times at Ridge my high. If you haven't seen it, but like with Stacy and Damone, where after they have this terrible quick sex in the pool house and then she's pregnant and he's just like, well, how you, how do I know it's my, how do I know it's my, it's very like awkward like what what a high school dude would do is like oh well i don't know if it's mine she's like you mm. take that back you son of a bitch is like basically what it is um but no yeah i i think i, I keep rambling with some of these scenes but yeah it is i think that kind of plot line is very almost ahead of its time in a way i think it's yeah. like that that movie and a movie called last american virgin at this around like i think the same year or a year or two later deal with like an abortion kind of plot line in a high school and like how the person who who is is involved in it the guy is like just too much of a dick to like help the help the girl out during it mm-hmm. um and i like the to go off the i like the judge reinhold jennifer jason lee scene yeah after that when he picks her up i think because they like they, they're brother and sister throughout the whole movie but you kind of get that to capture a kind of sibling relationship you kind of have that back and forth like they they, they not hate each other, but there's there's like, there's a little bit of a gap. It's like, oh, I'm annoyed that my like younger sister goes to the same high school as me. But then like you have these scenes of like he hides the flowers for her, but then he sees that she went somewhere else, so he goes to the clinic to pick her up. And it's this kind of like when he's like, "Are you gonna tell me who it is?" And she won't do it because she I think she knows like he's gonna go after and find the guy whoever mm-hmm. did this and 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 made her do it by herself. And he's like, "Okay, well that's that's just gonna be your secret then." That's yeah. what it is. Yeah, that's a great um, Judge Reinhold's great in this. Everybody's yeah, Judge Ryan, everyone's great in this. Judge Reinhold, funny story. Uh, you mentioned earlier about the casting. Uh, he got cast, I, I heard, because he was Amy Heckerling's neighbor. Oh. And he was dating Amy Heckerling's uh, assistant, is what it was. And her assistant lived beneath her at their same apartment complex. And they really want to judge. She basically she said, Judge looks too old. Uh, so they weren't going to cast him as Brad because then we started cast uh, uh, auditioning people and everyone's the exact same age as Judge. So we're just <laughs> like, oh, we might as well just do it. But 
they wanted to like they didn't want the producer whoever to know that like they knew judge so they had this thing where like he had to come in for the audition and just pretend he didn't know either of them <laughs> and they were both in there and the guy's like oh the producer like, oh god he's great we gotta cast him they're like yeah i think so too yeah <laughs> well and then did that i guess now knowing her friendship with martin Bress, i wonder if that's yeah with beverly hills cop yeah you're right mm-hmm. you're right it's when do you go bowling anyway Okay, Brad, please don't tell Mom and Dad. Come on. Who did it? You're not going to tell me, are you? Okay. It'll just be your secret. You all right? Yeah. Come on. hungry yeah well yeah getting into a little bit of the fallout um uncertain of the they were universal was kind of uncertain of the potential for the film like i said they weren't really sure who the audience was like was this a movie for teens it's it's definitely r-rated so they just decided to cut their losses and open the movie only on the west coast with little to no advertising but the movie was an overnight success with teens uh just through you know word of mouth and demand spread around the country local radio stations something really popular radio stations started getting prints and hosting screenings if theaters in town weren't having it like kids would be calling into their pop stations being like i want to see fast times and so they would they would find it and the studio just started printing new reels as fast as they could because they had just not prepared for the demand for it at all Mm -hmm. eventually the movie went on to make 27 roughly 27 million dollars on a four million dollar budget so yeah that's a lot for them yeah while it doesn't matter much for a movie that like hits with teen pop culture as much as this one does reviews were were kind of mixed especially you know looking back for something that has kind of become a classic surprisingly our friend pauline kale liked the movie uh she wrote i was surprised at how not bad it is (laughs) fast times is like the beach party movies at a late at a later stage as if they'd evolved Mm. and gained a higher form of consciousness Directed by a young woman, Amy Heckerling, making her feature film debut, the movie has an open, generous tone. She also noted how much she liked that like adults just weren't around in this movie, and it was yeah. just about kids relying on each other. Yeah. Many other critics, however, were uh, disgusted by the film's frank approach to sex. <laughs> One of those very disgusted was Roger Ebert, who... Yeah. Uh, who wrote, how could they do this to Jennifer Jason Lee? How could they put such a fresh and cheerful po- person into such a scuzz pit of a movie? <laughs> the makers of Fast Times have an absolute gift for taking potentially funny situations and turning them into general embarrassment. They're tone deaf. Yeah, he called the thing. He goes, if it was directed by a male, I would call this movie sexist, is what he said. <laughs> and to bring up that comment, I gotta say, we didn't, a scene we didn't talk about. It's, I mean, we have to kind of talk about this. It's the pool scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, with Reinhold and what I find so fascinating is it a movie a scene that is so like famous for being a male fantasy mm. is directed by a woman yeah and you know I think that's something that gets pulled out of context because the punchline of the scene yeah is how kind of ridiculous and disgusting men is men are yeah. for having that kind of fantasy but yeah yeah it, it, did it become- is yeah, it, I mean, it made Phoebe Cates like an instant sex icon and became this like notorious scene. And it's like, oh, okay, yeah, everyone missed the point of, of, of the scene. What yeah. they were saying here. So critics were mixed. Sorry to go to Roger Ebert hated it. That's the key thing. Yeah, but but like I said, you know, this is something that that spoke to the kids 
So what the newspapers had to say wasn't really going to influence them one way or the other. And, um, you know, I think it's something that has become obviously just just debuted on the Criterion Collection a few months ago. It is, it is something that became such a pop culture touchstone that that it's one of those movies that just reviews don't really matter. Although I, I, I thought it was I thought it was really interesting that of all the people we talk about, normally Kale liked this one. But, um, yeah, you know, she 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 kind of liked the kind of the more abrasive stuff, kind of the more she she, she, did. she was definitely a, a futurist, I guess you could say. I mean, but, um, it's like she she loved De Palma. She loved De Palma movies, mm-hmm. for God's sakes. And, the, and that's the movie that I think was derided by most uh, people at the time. I, I think what's interesting with Fast Times is like because you got to think is that it comes out. Three, it comes out three years before Breakfast Club, two years before Sixteen Candles. So it really kind of Fast Times might be under uh, underappreciated of how it kind of starts the '80s boom of teen yeah. comedies. Yeah, because I mean that is what what Kale was saying is essentially what Hughes became praised for was this idea of making these movies and being like kids can teenagers can fend for themselves and we can tell stories about them that appeal to everyone, people of all yeah. ages. And um, yeah, I think this movie definitely brought that around by by taking that by working with Crow and trying to take that nonfiction approach to it. It gave us that quality of like these are real kids and this is what they're actually going through. All right. So after Fast Times, uh, Heckerling was in very high demand. You know, like we said, it was very, very good turnaround for a little teen comedy. And so she received a ton of scripts to direct next, but she said she's made her mind up. She was going to throw out anything that was about high schoolers or about girls losing their virginity, anything like that was not interested in, in going straight into another teen comedy. So one script that came across her desk specifically caught her eye. It was a Zucker Brothers style spoof of classic gangster films, and it spoke directly to the child in Heckerling who loved James Cagney. Yeah. Um, so she signed on to it. It felt like perfectly tailored for her to make this kind of loving homage of all these movies she grew up on. And they rounded up a, a pretty all star cast once again. Yeah. Um, some people kind of established, some people up and coming. Michael Keaton was fresh off of Night Shift and Mr. Mom. Those are really the two only two notable credits to his name at that point. Joe Piscopo was on Saturday Night Live. Uh, Griffin Dunn was was up and coming. Yeah, Peter Boyle, Danny DeVito, and uh, yeah, so they that that film became 1984's Johnny Dangerously, which I believe Brandon saw for the first time this week. Yeah, I had never seen it before, but it's one where Thomas is like, I could do a whole episode on Johnny Dangerously. <laughs> I my my mom, I don't even know what prompted her. My mom gave me a Johnny Dangerously DVD or in the early days of DVDs, and I loved. I was obsessed with mel brooks and i yeah. was obsessed with the zucker brothers at that point and yeah. so i i watched it so many times yeah it's one because I, I, I texted you i was like i'm honestly shocked i'd never seen this before now simply because i loved mel brooks growing up and it was kind of like i watched robin hood men tights i watched young frankenstein um blazing saddles a little I had, to, I had to wait for that one that one took a little <laughs> while before i got to watch that one as a kid but like i was watching the mel brooks stuff and um and this one, I was like, oh, this just this feel. This is a Mel Brooks movie. It's like it's mm. it's, it's it's one of those lost parody films of the 80s where it's like they're not really discussed as much. And I think it's like it's this movie. I think it's Top Secret with Val Kilmer. Oh, God. Yeah, um, I love Top Secret. Or it's like I, it's like we, we discussed kind of the, the Mel Brooks or Zucker Brothers, the airplane 
Um, but we kind of lose the fact like there was a there was a weird trend in the 80s, uh, 70s and 80s of these type of movies, even like other Mel Brooks films that we don't discuss, like High Anxiety or Silent Movie and things like that, that are also parodies of a genre. And I guess maybe Giant Dangerously hasn't hasn't held up in terms of a following because the gangster film is so kind of of a period yeah, that like well, isn't really we, discussed as much anymore. Yeah, we can talk about that in in the fallout for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like it's like 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 Blazing Saddles was westerns like that they, they weren't. When it came out in the 70s, they weren't fully away from the Western genre mm. and it hadn't fully died off. But like in terms of they're like 1930s gangster films are a very specific type of movie that yeah. in that period of just television, were they playing that much? Like, was it a part of the culture? Yeah. Well, I mean, like specifically, there's one joke that they lean into very hard in the film based off of the idea that like in the the slang in the early 1930s gangster movie, it was all about intro like taking this kind of like Italian American slang and using it to sub in for uh profanity because yeah, obviously yeah. It was a very, during the very tight haze code. So there's this running joke that there's this character that like has all these like <laughs> botched uh, Italian translations. You, you, you Fargan bastiches. <laughs> um, but yeah, if you like didn't get that joke, you'd just be like, why is this guy speaking nonsense through this entire yeah. movie? <laughs> Yeah, it's it's an interesting film. It's like I I think Keaton's fun. I think Griffin Dunn's fun. Um, I love the Joe Pisco Joe Pisco bit of like uh, my grandmother hit me one time, one time. Yeah, once. That's, <laughs> once, that's that, I feel once. I think that has endured the most. I'll, I'll see people reference that online every once in a while, and I'll be like, oh, nice Johnny Danger. She hit me like, once, only once. Yeah, I Griffin Dunn is. It's hilarious in this movie. I love my, when I was a kid. My favorite scene we used to put on is like right after he's gone to dinner at Danny DeVito's, and Danny DeVito's tried to get him to play ball. Yeah, and he's going home, and, and Danny DeVito's cut his brakes. Yeah, and he's like rolling down the hill, and they just put this uh, audio on loop. Yeah. And he's like, whoa, "Whoa, my god! Oh my god! Oh my god!" <laughs> whoa, my god. <laughs> I watched that too, and you're just like watching it. It's like it's like 80 miles per hour, 90 miles, 100 miles per hour. And like the, the music speeding up as yeah, as speeding goes. up. I think, and I'm just thinking like that's not like that. I mean, that's it. That's not possible, and it's a parody film. But like, it's just funny. Like that's not possible in that time of like a car to go that fast. Yeah. I I also love the bit, the Maureen Stapleton bits of just like I'm 35 or like however she however old she is like, mm. and she's like in her 30s, but she's Maureen Stapleton at like in her 60s is what it is. Yeah. Uh, or like when he's it, it, I, my one of my favorite bits just an offhanded line it's it's when keaton and uh mary lou henner are like walking this a constant like walking uh mm. scene when they're talking and she's like and that's how i ended up here in chicago and he's like we're in new york and she's like oh really he's like yeah and she's like oh okay and it's just <laughs> like <laughs> <laughs> and Keaton's face is like, huh? And then you just see like the as they're walking, it's like you see the the like the line of like New, like a subway station, New York line, New Jersey, and it just mm. keeps showing them walking, walking, and they get to some field, and, and Keaton's like, where the hell are we? <laughs> <laughs> 
this is this is something you watch and you're just like oh, okay like people the people who did see this movie were like that michael keaton guy is just gonna be a star it's amazing like, yeah yeah like night night shift i think is his was his like real breakout and mr mom was a was yeah. a success at well as well and I, I i enjoyed mr mom when i was a kid i haven't revisited him forever but i do remember yeah. it being very like like he's just playing a normal guy and this one like there's some i, I was watching it um uh with my fiance the other night and she had never seen mm-hmm. it before and there's that scene when he's like break like trying to he's about to break out of prison and so he's like convincing them that, yeah. to put him in the electric chair oh. and she was like yeah. she's like that was some uh that was some beetlejuice energy i was like yep <laughs> <laughs> one of the one of the lines that that comes to me every once in a while and i'd honestly kind of forgotten it even came from this movie but when uh when he's on his way to the electric chair and his like gang member is pretending to be uh the priest to get him out and he's like pretending to read latin out of the bible and he's got uh-huh. he's like omnipo omnipodus i miss the bus you miss the bus when is the next bus <laughs> hey there you are we were waiting in the car i was beginning to wonder what happened to my married kid brother i'm johnny kelly's kid brother not johnny dangerously's just a matter of time wasn't it kid listen all i ask is you don't tell ma She's going to find out. Because when I put you behind bars, Johnny, dangerously, your picture's going to be on the front page of every newspaper in this country. Why, Johnny? Why? I don't know, kid. Maybe it's because that big dealer up in the sky shuffles the cards and we just play what we're dealt. It's against the law to gamble. I took an oath to fight crime, but I can't go against my own brother. So we're going to have to settle this with our fists. Whoa, wait a minute, kid. You can't fight me. I'm too good. I'll take my chances. Okay. I win, you quit. You win, I quit. But yeah, this this one this one was a big one for me in the early early DVD days. And uh, yeah, I think it, like you said, like a lot of these Mel Brooks movies, especially around this time, it, it, you can just see how lovingly it is crafted yeah. towards yeah the genre gangster movies um but you know if we're ready to dive into the aftermath you can also yeah, kind of see it. why uh, why this movie's <laughs> not not as remembered yeah so it, it it came out to fairly good reviews um people like we said a lot of critics people who study film were like wow this is a just like heckerling is a obviously a big fan yeah. of gangster movies this is a very loving homage to all of those um, but it failed to take off at the box office because most people in the 1984 weren't watching James Cagney movies. Yes. Like, you have to remember this is still early, early rental times. Yeah. So, you know, if it wasn't on TV, but like you expensive. Yeah. Exp- like rent 84 uh, rentals are maybe starting up, but they're like they're expensive. VHS yeah, so tapes are expensive. You're still at this point where like if something wasn't shown on television or, or playing as a revival, you weren't seeing it. So something from yeah. the 1930s, just not going to be as prominent. Um, and that's what Heckerling says that just audiences probably just weren't aware of the source material. She, she did say that she was very honored to hear at one point while it was playing, someone told her that they were at a screening with Brian De Palma and that he laughed through the whole thing. And so she said, well, at least, at least De Palma knows what I'm going for. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it did still turn a profit, though. It, it earned about $18 million on a $9 million budget. Um, but it really just failed to make much of a dent on pop culture or endure beyond a very small group of fans. And um, 
it was very briefly on netflix a couple years ago and i was like oh okay johnny dangerously is about to take off but i i still didn't really hear a lot of people um uh, mm-hmm. talking about it then and at this point you can't even stream it I, I i went to go rent it off of just honestly just to be lazy because i have the dvd but i was like <laughs> i might just rent it off of amazon and it's not even like rentable on amazon yeah, right now it's not so I, a good bit of her films are not rentable like on i mean i i say a good bit i know at least two that and i could never be your woman it's just it's just disc basically so um her next movie, directly after Johnny Dangerously, was 1985's National Lampoon's European Vacation. She landed this gig before the kind of less enthusiastic response for Johnny Dangerously, uh, just kind of off of still riding the wave from Fast Times. Yeah, and uh, it, it was it's you know it's it's one film that she didn't really have a lot of input into the script. She didn't have she she doesn't feel like she had as much control over this one as a lot of her films but something yeah. i thought was interesting is um something that became a trope in this series which was recasting the kids was yeah. was heckerling's idea because <laughs> um I anthony michael hall didn't come back because he was shooting weird science and uh-huh. the producer the producers had already told the actress who played audrey from the first movie that she could come back but heckerling said if we're starting over with a new rusty can we just have a new Audrey? And oh, um, and so they, they recast for her as well. And that girl didn't have much of a career after that. The, <laughs> or the, the, the girl, who was the girl that they had in the original one I'm looking at? Let's see. Dana, Dana Barron. She, oh, I know. She reprised Audrey in a National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation 2. Cousin Eddie's Island, was Island, Island Adventure. Oh, Ed, yeah, I do remember seeing that cover at Parental my blockbuster oh i remember oh, i remember the cover i never watched it so the the production of european vacation uh was very famously troubled the cast and crew were just dragged around it was all shot on location so the cast and crew were dragged around europe on an exhausting whirlwind shoot meanwhile chevy chase already known to be pretty difficult on set was uh especially irritable he had just had a baby three months earlier and was contractually obligated to be there but was not happy about it and uh, beverly d'angelo has said since that chase just took it out on everyone on set yeah uh heckerling doesn't really like to talk about her time on this movie but uh it's well known that she and chevy didn't get along he's he's kind of spoken ill about her since then saying that he thinks this is one of the weaker movies out of the franchise and it's because of her um but of her time on the movie she just said it was torture the only way she could show up to set every day was having her film's travel coordinator assure her that they could get her a ticket back to New York that night if she asked for it. <laughs> God, that sounds terrible. I mean, here's the thing. Uh, Chevy must not have seen Vegas Vacation because... No, Chevy, Chevy, Chevy is very open that he only did Vegas Vacation to not get sued by the studio and he knew it was a bad movie before he even signed okay. on. I mean, before he even showed up. He so also like, just doesn't th- think this one's very good, which I, I do. I like European Vacation. I know some people yeah. that European Vacation is their favorite of the movies. Yeah. I mean, I think it's the third of the like third best of the four because I just like. But it's also like it's 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 more in, it's more in line as a traditional sequel to the first movie. Christmas Vacation almost can stand on its own. It feels like mm-hmm. this feels like a, a, a legitimate sequel to the first one of like oh yeah you're gonna yeah it's 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 the we talked about this with the sequel movies of like oh yeah what's the uh the uh go-to one of the go-to moves for making a sequel take the characters you love and put them in a different location that you you haven't mm-hmm. seen them before so yeah 
the Griswolds uh, traveled America in the first one. Let's have them travel Europe in the second one. Um, but yeah, I remember, and this one was the more I think risque of the yeah. of the four, with like Rusty like making out or, or making out with the uh, uh, where were they at? Are they in Sweden or it's like the like the kind of the barmaid like the festival like uh, mm-hmm. uh and then it's also the, they go to the strip club as well. Well, the, um, the kind of missing sex tape. The missing MacGuffin. sex, yeah, yeah. The, the strip tease, yeah, the strip tease that Bella D'Angelo does in the shower that Chevy, that, that Clark tapes is kind of the thing. It's like it's a, it's the moment when they're when they're taking a again. It doesn't make sense where like they have a guy video them in the in the uh the fountain. He's like, oh, just get a picture. Oh no no, take your shoes off. Get in the fountain. It's like, a lot of people do it, and they're in the fountain. He leaves, and then she's like, "You deleted that, right?" He's like, mm-hmm. "Oh yeah, of course, of course." <laughs> And it becomes like it, it have, is it like billboards for it or something at one point? Yeah, yeah right? it becomes yeah. It, it gets distributed as like a porn, as a porn and, tape. Uh, yeah, becomes famous. No, it's it's it's. I, I mean, I like the kind of traveling like section of it, but I, what I also find funny about too the uh, the casting of Audrey and R- Rusty is that all like the ages always change throughout mm-hmm. the movie. It's like she's kind of the older one in this one or she's kind of well no he's the older one in this one she's kind of the younger one it feels like and then the next one like he's very young in christmas vacation and then mm-hmm. uh um the uh audrey is really old, is older in that it's, it's a very like just funny bit they keep doing and they're back to the same age in vegas vacation so yeah the movie re- received mixed and negative reviews when it came out with pretty much everyone agreeing that um Heckerling brings a lot of slapstick energy to the sequel, but it doesn't live up to that kind of unique comedic style of the first film, which I mean, the first film is kind of it's I think I do think Christmas Vacation does its own thing. But like, it's hard to pinpoint what the comedic blend of the first movie is. It's kind of sincere. It's kind of cynical. Yeah. Clark is an asshole, but it's also about coming together with your family but they also kidnap a man at gunpoint at one point it's yeah it's a very very hard movie to replicate and and yeah i think heckerling kind of went more in a screwball direction like a mad 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 world kind of yeah it's it's a a screwball road trip is what it kind of feels like yeah i agree with that uh some one thing we'll note before moving on something sometime during the production of european vacation heckerling had an affair with harold ramus who had directed the first, first film, one yeah and became pregnant with ramus's daughter and decided to have the baby with her husband at the time writer neil israel um heckerling's daughter molly was around 15 before she was told who her real father was and the truth Holy. didn't come out to the public <laughs> until ramus's daughter violet um published an autobiography in 2018 wow that's a that's a story right there. Yeah, which leads us interestingly into Look Who's Talking. Wow. Which I don't think anyone realized until 2018 is a movie about a Kirstie Alley who has had an affair with a married man and has his baby without him involved and and comes to find like another man uh played by John Travolta to help her raise this baby. So I don't think anyone realized that that was kind of an autobiographical yeah. movie until until this story came out in 2018. My my mind's kind of blown. I gotta be honest with you on that. Um, okay, and that becomes a, a massive success. Look who's yeah. talking. <laughs> yeah. So 
Heckerling said she wrote this movie after her experience in Europe. We also now realize after her experience with Harold Ramis. Harold um, Ramis, yeah. But she said she just wanted to make movies where everyone had fun working on them. So they're shot in New York, set in New York. Um, uh, she She's noted that despite these movies often being pointed to as the low point in John Travolta's career, the types of movies that Tarantino had to quote unquote save Travolta from, um she was an absolute he was an absolute joy to work with and she was very grateful to um to have him on the cast uh so yeah the first film grossed almost 300 million dollars worldwide hugely successful (laughs) for a comedy 300 million dollars on like a 7.5 million dollar budget i look at on wikipedia right now and um so heckling wrote and directed the second one look who's talking two is that it Mm -hmm. and then who's talking to yes she she produced she only produced the third one she was she wasn't involved in the, the second in the second one, one wasn't but, as um, big of a hit and the third one was it yeah. was a, a buckhouse bomb but heckerling has said this movie helped her achieve one of, she had two goals when she got into the industry she said one was she wanted to make something real which yeah. is which she said she was able to do right off the bat with fast times but she said her other goal was that she wanted to have hits the way boys had hits. Not a girl hit that made $50 million, but a boy hit that made hundreds of millions of dollars. So and Look Who's look Talking, who's talking yeah. got her to that point. I mean, that's probably, honestly, one of the most, like, highest grossing films by a female filmmaker, if you, like, possibly. Like, because then we talked about that a little bit with, with Nancy Myers and What Women Want was, like, one of the, the highest. But it, when you're getting in that $300 million range, that's pretty high yeah Um, and that's another one we we talked last week about like how rare it is for comedies to perform uh, in other countries but yeah it did i think it was like close to 200 million in america but then like another 100 million worldwide so yeah it it obviously had something people people were into talking babies oh yeah i forgot to mention bruce willis is the voice of the baby yeah we didn't talk i mean the, the plot line of look who's talking so the first one this these were a big like these were played in my household a lot apparently um but look who's talking yeah it's like it's it's about bruce willis plays the baby that's born it's like the baby's inner thoughts essentially mm-hmm. and the sequel is what do you do when you do a sequel you add a second baby another baby and that's and that's uh, i think it's roseanne Barr is this is the second one and then what do you do when you do another sequel animals the ki- animals the kids are older and it's the animals thought thinking and it's danny devito in it as as one of them and then was the, and diane keaton danny devito and diane keaton yeah uh here's one thing i will say if i remember correctly from these movies this one we haven't really discussed as much her soundtracks are great yeah even like the movies that aren't that good her soundtracks are on point no matter what so like i think of look who's talking uh i can't remember which i think it's two look who's talking two that has like george harrison has elvis um i think she didn't direct it but look who's look who's talking now which is the third one has like a great funny enough a great eagles song uh <laughs> a great eagles christmas song please come home for christmas uh that's i think a, i, I didn't rewatch it rewatch that sequence because it's been a while but i remember always like liking that sequence um but yeah anyway great soundtracks all, all around you lied to me about the artificial insemination crap didn't you it was married i wasn't supposed to tell anyone do you love him do you I don't know. I don't know who I love. 
And you know something? It doesn't make any difference because the only thing that matters to me is who's best for Mikey. And Albert is successful, he's responsible, and he's real good to his other kids. Well, I don't want him seeing Mikey anymore. Oh, no, now don't start pulling this on me. He's his son, and he has a right to see him anytime he wants to. Where the hell has he been all year? This has nothing to do with you. You are not his father. Well, I'm the closest thing that he's got to it. Oh, please, look at you. You're like a big kid. Oh, what, you really think you're responsible enough to be a father? Responsible? You you call getting pregnant by a married guy responsible? Oh, that's good. Stop it. You stop. You stop it! No, you stop. I've seen you. I've seen you use Mikey to push guys away, and now you're doing it to me. That's it. I've had it. Now get out! I live here! I know it! So, yeah, those, the look of talking, those films kind of took over Heckerling's life for the last part of the 80s, early 90s, and when she finally kind of emerged from the, the look who's talking machine uh she was ready for a change of pace uh she and she wanted to revisit the high school movie feeling like enough time over 10 years had passed since fast times so she really felt like enough time had passed that it was time for a fresh look at high schools um she pitched an idea to fox for a tv show updating jane austen's book emma as a modern high school show um heckerling had a little bit of previous experience with tv there was a very short-lived Fast Times at Richmond High adaptation called Fast Times that she directed yeah. three episodes for. Um, and, Fox- and a look and a look who's talking TV show as well. Oh, it's it was it, it was kind of it was called something else I believe it was a uh, baby talk, <laughs> but it was a loose adaptation loosely based on Look Who's Talking. So uh, yeah, Fox greenlit her show it was originally called No Worries. At some point, the pilot got changed to I Was a Teenage Teenager. Oh God. <laughs> Heckerling uh, took a note from her old writing partner, Cameron Crowe, and um, started visiting high schools and sitting in on classes, uh, discovering that L.A. teen slang that would become the dialogue for this uh, this project that would eventually come to be called Clueless. Fox pushed Heckerling's show through the casting process and assigned her a casting director, um, Carrie Frazier. And Heckerling and Carrie Frazier kind of, she said in their first meeting, they came together and Heckerling was like, listen... I've already got Sharon mind. It's going to be this girl. She's been in these Aerosmith music videos. She's great. Yeah. And Frazier said, okay, well, I have somebody in mind. She was in this thriller called The Crush that just came out. And <laughs> so I think we should consider her as well. And Heckerling said, okay, I'm going to bring you some of these Aerosmith mu- music videos. You bring The Crush and we'll watch them. And then they put them <laughs> on and realized they were both talking about Alicia Silverstone. Yep. Yeah, because she she played. I, I haven't seen the crush, but that was like kind of her. That was her debut. But uh, so the project, uh, part, the project starts gaining a little bit more steam. People are talking about it around town, and so Fox decides they're going to take it from a series to a feature. But they ask Heckerling to reframe the story to focus on the male characters, <laughs> worrying that a film about female characters had less mainstream appeal than a TV show would. So Heckerling refused, and yeah. Fox put the project into turnaround yeah imagine being the fox exec who put clueless in to turn around turn around yep eventually the script found its way to unfortunately scott rudin yeah who uh took interest to the project and he took it to someone who has been very a champion of our female directors this month sherry lansing at paramount <laughs> sherry lansing underrated is what it's coming out to be is what it sounds like um so set up now at paramount most of the casting kind of started over 
Um, but Alicia Silverstone stayed on. But um, the, the casting process, really, it's kind of incredible. It became a who's who of uh-huh. just Hollywood's 90s, like freshman class. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though Silverman, Silverstone had come over with the project, the studio asked Heckerling to see other options. Mm-hmm. And Heckerling recalls seeing Angelina Jolie, who mm-hmm. she wrote off as, as a little too knowing and mature. Uh, Reese Witherspoon. Uh, Tiffany Amber Thiessen, who was being pushed very hard by the studio. Yeah, apparently. she was at that point. Yeah. Uh, Carrie Russell and Gwyneth Paltrow all came in mm-hmm. for share at some point. At one point, Ben Affleck was being pushed very hard by Fox for Josh, but dropped out of the project when it moved to Paramount. Also, at one point, real life couple Seth Green and Alana Yuvok were considered for Travis and Ty. But Heckerling eventually picked Breckenmeyer for Travis, not knowing that Breckenmeyer and Seth Green were close friends at the time. Yeah. And she said once Brittany Murphy came in for Ty, everyone just knew they had the perfect fit for that one. And she's great. She's great as Ty. The hardest to cast was Josh. That was one that was just kind of a difficult note to hit. And Heckerling was also through this whole thing. I should say Heckerling had like a like teens only policy for this movie. She was like, I don't want this to be 20 somethings playing teens. So it was it was kind of weird. You had to hit on someone for Josh that like looked was a little bit older, was college age, but like didn't feel creepy that yeah. he was dating a high Hanging schooler. It. Yeah. Um, so none of the L.A. auditions really hit. And so Heckerling went across the country on kind of auditions, seeing college acting students and uh, including a young nor- Northwestern student named Zach Braff auditioned at one. Oh, point. wow. But uh, eventually, Paul Rudd came to audition for a different role. He auditioned for Elton, and everyone said, wait, this this is our Josh. <laughs> I didn't realize it was his debut, now that you say that. I didn't realize that this was his first. Yeah, he had, he, he's, he, I saw a quote from him where he was up for um, Halloween 5 that he's he, in. Yeah, he, he what yeah he was in that yeah yeah and he said his his it six, came down six, to like he yeah. was taking him right at the same time they were trying to figure out if they could both work and his agent was like listen turn down the teen movie do the halloween movie and he was like well if you look back on it now i think my agent was wrong but yeah i did do both he did do um, both and, and he because he plays uh he plays tommy tommy doyle in halloween mm-hmm. six uh so the only person who kind of broke the teenagers only rule was stacy dash Heckling said she just nailed her audition for Dion, but she was 27 at the time. Of, yeah, of she was filming. old. I'm being old. Yeah. And the decision for Dion's boyfriend was uh, Heckling really wanted Dave Chappelle from Murray. It was after uh, it was after Robin Hood Men in Tights, and yep. and she she really wanted Chappelle, but he was busy, and so it came down to two guys who were best friends from growing up. I didn't know this one. Donald Faison and Terrence Howard. <laughs> they were best. They were friends growing up. Faison said he had known ha- Terrence Howard since they were eight years old. Wow, I didn't know that. Wow, uh, two very different careers for both of them. Yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah. So ultimately, yeah, it went to Donald Faison. By all accounts, production went very smoothly. Everyone mm-hmm. speaks very fondly of their time working on this movie, and it sounds like Lansing just provided all the support that Heckerling needed. Um, a lot of studios at this time were were kind of certain that the teen movie was dead. And uh, Lansing saw the potential for Heckling to do the same thing in the 90s that she and John Hughes had done for the 80s, which was create a movie for teens that felt like it actually captured teen culture and teen life and didn't talk down to them. 
there were a few bumps in the road, like with any production, including uh, an unusually rainy January in L.A. that ended up flooding the sheriff's picture house. That's crazy. And Breckenmeyer also sprained his ankle pretty early on in the movie, so they had to do some creative shooting to get around his crutches in, in some scenes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, So, yeah, if, if anyone is not aware of, of Clueless. Clueless somehow, <laughs> it is a 90s update of emma about a kind of well-to-do young woman who likes to play matchmaker and so in in clueless it's about Cher, who is a very rich beverly hills girl who finds this she and her best friend dion find this new girl ty who's just come to la and she is not she's not beverly hills at all and they decide they're gonna make her over and get her with the most popular guy in school um, yeah. But through this process, Cher comes to mature and recognize herself and ends up falling in love with the her ex-stepbrother that she used to not get along with at all. <laughs> it really is like kind of just a weird like it, I, it's always just a weird kind of turn right there. Yeah, um, I think in the from what I know. All right. I've never read Emma. I've only seen the Anya Taylor-Joy, but it's it's more like he's just like a like a neighbor. Fair. Yeah, a really close family friend. Close family friend. Yeah, uh, and they have their like banter uh, with. So, Brandon, what is your uh, what is your relationship with Clueless? Oh. <laughs> what is my relationship with Clueless? Um, uh, it was when I watched a good bit. Uh, I feel like as a as like a kid or teen, I don't say good bit, but I've watched it. I watched it enough where it was very remin. Like I, that it was very memorable to me. Like thinking of like the liquor store in uh in Clueless. I'm when I moved to LA, I was like, I gotta find that liquor store. Like the, <laughs> the clown, whatever mm. it was there. Um yeah, it's very we actually watched it. It was one we actually watched right when COVID started because a lot of people in our movie group actually hadn't seen Clueless. It was actually kind of surprising. It was like really? half the group had at least three people in our group hadn't seen Clueless. And we're like, I guess we gotta watch Clueless then. Like, um, and it's just the the writing is so strong um and the casting it's a it's pretty much a pitch perfect cast mm-hmm. um and I, when looking at someone like alicia silverstone it, it's somewhat i don't know how she works consistently but talk about a star that was just like burned so bright so fast like mm-hmm. it's literally just like clueless bam huge aerosmith videos and then it's excess baggage and then Batman and Robin. And then that's it. Like, it's kind of just like the rest of the career is just fighting to like do better than Batman and Robin is what it feels like. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, uh, or blast in the past. I forgot about blast in the past. I like that movie a lot. Side thing. Cause Brendan Fraser, great man. Recently resurfacing, doing some really interesting, like she takes, she's been taking some interesting really TV interesting stuff. roles lately. Well, and she was in, she had a very interesting role in Killing of a Sacred Deer um, that, uh-huh. that I really enjoyed her in. And um, also a, a, a horror film recently, kind of indie horror film uh, called The Lodge. The Lodge. Recently, yeah. yeah. And then she's doing, uh, what's the TV show she's doing now? When she didn't, she was in something, I thought. Uh, she's an American woman that was on like uh, oh, Paramount yeah. Network. Uh, and then she's doing, a voice, she's doing a voice on Masters of the Universe tv show which i didn't know she still has a career and a successful career but like you know what i mean like it's a you see that some person who's just like she is like the it girl mm-hmm. 
in this in in the 90s and for someone who was kind of the it girl in the 90s she didn't have a lot of like 90s successes is what i mean yeah it's like it's the crush it's clueless and then it's like uh blast in the past is like kind of like in terms of success stuff but yeah i think she's amazing in it i think her i think paul rudd's great i think Brittany murphy is just i i, I think it's just so charming in this movie, mm-hmm. Brittany Murphy. I, I think she is someone who I think the past few years were slowly beginning to kind of reassess her career and her abilities. It feels like, I think, I think after she passed away it, some stuff I think was kind of like people kind of forgot how kind of like just good she was. Um, but I think clueless is kind of just this, she's 17 in this movie. It's insane mm-hmm. how good she is at 17 in this film. Oh, a party. It's in the valley. The cops usually break them up in less than an hour, and it takes that long to get there. And besides, it's just local lodies. Do you guys think the Travis is going to be there? Ty, I thought we moved on from Don't this. sell yourself short now. You've got something going for you that no one in the school has. Oh, I'm not a virgin. I mean, mystery. As far as everyone's concerned, you're the most popular girl in your school. And the fact that you hang with Dee and I, well, that speaks very highly of you. If you strike while the iron is hot, you can have any guy that you want. Like, oh, let's see, who's available? There's Bronson, Grant. I got it, Elton. He just oh, broke off the ledge. Yes. Who's Elton? Oh my God, he's way popular. He's like the social director of the crew. Yeah, his dad can get you into any concert. And I noticed him scoping you out. He was looking at me? He said you gave him a toothache. How'd I do that? It's an expression. It means he thought you were sweet. Yeah? Yeah? Wow. <laughs> Is that true? Oh, you are so bad. But yeah, Donald Faison, Breckenmeyer, always great as as the stoner skateboarder. Um, but yeah, so it's one that like it's like been around, like it's been like I guess in in my life, and I've watched it a few times over the years. But it just it definitely just screams 1990s more than pretty much any film I can think of. Yeah, like it captures the era incredibly well. Yeah, this was one I, I feel like when I was a kid, because so the show went on to get or the movie went on to get a TV adaptation yeah. uh, on UPN that that Heckerling worked on. Yeah, but ran for three years. Was, I just I saw ran yeah. for three years. Yeah. And so UPN was one of the 12 channels I got when I was a kid. So like, <laughs> that, like I we, the movie and, and so they ran the movie a lot on like Saturdays uh-huh. on UPN, but they also ran the show. And so that's one thing like in my memory, I have these memories of like scenes from the movie and then i'll go back and like rewatch the movie i'll be like oh yeah no wait that was from the show <laughs> but yeah watch definitely saw this movie a lot on tv growing up yeah it, it yeah like you said it, it is the 90s but it, it's yeah. also you know it, it, and we'll talk about it in the, in the fallout but you know it is kind of the beginning of this like it's obviously not a shakespeare adaptation but this whole like let's take classical literature and update yeah. it for for teens that that became this whole thing in the in the 90s 2000s um yeah. yeah so much fun like i said very charming i don't think anyone other than paul rudd there, there is kind of a creepy element to that relationship and if it was anyone other than paul rudd it would be more creepy but yeah. uh yeah really 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 great he makes it work i, I want to talk about his, his 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 portrayal later on a different amy heckling movie is way more creepy to me than this one <laughs> and this is has the creepier like kind of i guess conceit or the like kind of like relationship but they somehow yeah. make it work and it's very charming um, any any scenes or, or lines or anything you want to shout out 
I mean, there's a lot of great stuff in this movie. Again, another film similar to Fast Times at Richmond High. It has this kind of vignette quality to it sometimes. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? It's like, it's like this is what we're doing now. I'm setting up this person. And it's like, oh, it's like, it's the, I'm setting up Brittany, Mer- setting up Ty with Elton. And then it's the, oh, I'm trying to get Christian. Or, oh, I'm trying to set up Mr. Wendell and Mrs. Geist to get it's like it's always just each kind of vignette is her setting someone up essentially mm-hmm. uh and again, you have that kind of christmas thing as well you have that christmas party the christmas party they do uh it's the night when she gets left in the valley mm-hmm. uh at yeah. the liquor store which i just love but no yeah i love the yeah again kind of little scene afterwards when paul rudd comes and picks her up and it's the paul rudd and his girlfriend and she like uh 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 corrects his girlfriend about who says something in Hamlet because Mel Gibson said it in the Hamlet movie or whatever it was. Yeah, I love that. I love the way that they write Cher in this movie and, and like you can be ditzy and not dumb. Like Cher is, yeah. is so smart and so resourceful in some ways and very ignorant of other things. But but she yeah. ultimately is like a very intelligent person. Yeah, and, and can fend for herself in a way. It's like the, she. It's like there's a scene early on. It's like when she's walking to school and she's talking about how like how high school guys. It's very similar to, to Linda and Fast Times of how mm-hmm. she's like, oh high school guys are just like they're like dogs that you are like pets you have to take care of. And then that's like when a you dude. Get, that's kinda, when we get our first as if. Yeah, yeah. Oh, when a guy when a guy walks when, yeah when a guy walks up and tries to get he just she just like she like pushes him away and does the as if line. But yeah, it's it's like I think her and uh, Dan Hedaya have a great relationship. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I always think he's great in movies. Something else that's very personal to I mean, I, I think the, the the trio of of Silverstone with Stacy Dash and Donald Faison is hilarious. But um, yeah, the stuff in the car, very, the stuff in the car. Yeah, <laughs> something that's very personal to Heckerling from what I've read with interviews with her as a native New Yorker. When she moved to L.A., she did not have a driver's license and had to learn in los angeles and so i think a lot of that like just screaming when you've uh, uh accidentally turned onto the freeway is uh <laughs> is very realistic do you remember the first time you got on the freeway there there uh oh, God, the, the <laughs> first morning the morning after i moved into la i, I came in kind of late at night on purpose so yeah. that i wouldn't hit traffic and then the, but then the next morning i had shipped a box to like a family friend and he was we, we were like hey can we come grab that box from you and he's like oh yeah i'm just shooting something in downtown la you guys should come oh here. no so I had to go, like, <laughs> do that like crazy interchange and had to like merge across four lanes of traffic to get it was like the first exit after you've like merged yeah. in onto um onto downtown and i had to like merge across like four lanes to get to that first lane to get oh, over God. yeah it's yeah. terrifying yeah it's i i remember the first time getting the front my adrenaline was pumping I was just like, oh, my God, what is happening? Sorry for the people who are L.A. people who had to deal with that conversation just now. <laughs> but I just I just think I just like, oh, my God, what is happening? Because it's so L.A. driving can be so aggressive. And and when you're like, I always say like learning to drive is like in L.A. I think it'd just be insane to me. Mm-hmm. Like you'd have to go find some like a like a like a, a kind of a quiet neighborhood or something like you maybe have to go drive like the, the streets of Beverly Hills because it's literally just like kind of dead at specific points of the day yeah. um but yeah but the scene when they're when they're like and when they when they get on the freeway he's like you get on the freeway no what are you doing and like that when they, <laughs> everything just starts freaking out i think is amazing woman why don't you be answering any of my pages i hate when you call me woman where you been all weekend what's up you jeeping behind my back 
Jeepin. 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 No, but speaking of vehicular sex, perhaps you can explain how this cheap Kmart hair extension got into the back seat of your car. I don't know where that came from. That looks like one of your little stringy something or another you got up in your hair. I do not wear polyester hair, okay? Unlike some people I know, like Shawana. See, I'm outie. Bye. Why do you gotta That's go it. there? I've Why had do you it gotta go there? You. Is it that time of the month again? <laughs> I don't know why Dion's going out with a high school boy. They're like dogs. You have to clean them and feed them, and they're just like these nervous creatures that jump and slobber all over you. Ew! Get off of me! Ugh, as if! So, uh, the movie became just like, an, it was an instant success. Um, thanks in part to an excellent Paramount marketing campaign, Paramount had recently acquired MTV at that point, and um, so they pushed the movie a lot through mtv mm, and uh smart. so teens as soon as it came out like teens knew i have to see this movie mm-hmm. uh it grossed 57 million on a 12 million dollar budget and became an instant pop culture touchstone it, it was such an entrant instant pop culture success that it's one of those movies like it's hard to tell how much of the slang hackerling picked up in our time shallow yeah. high schoolers and how much of it her movie just immediately injected into teen yeah. culture yeah uh, it's 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 honestly kind of hard to think of another movie that had that that sort of impact um another huge influence of clueless was that it convinced studios that the high school genre wasn't dead like i said it paved the way for pretty much any 90s teen movie that came after it and it also paved the way for a lot of those like let's update classical literature and aim it at teens uh yeah. kind of thing which i'm not sure what the exact motivation of that was like oh then you can show it an english class or was it just like oh let's take these books that like teens haven't read and then they won't realize that we're just recycling the same stories yeah i don't know <laughs> i mean because right after the right after this you get romeo and juliet romeo i'm sorry romeo plus juliet which paul mm-hmm. rudd is also in um and then and inspires dicaprio to, to do titanic do you know that story i did not so paul so paul rudd paul rudd and dicaprio on side story on on, on tangent on this uh, Paul Rudd and uh, DiCaprio were on Romeo Plus Juliet together, and Paul was talking to DiCaprio, and he found out that he was like up for this this little movie called Titanic. And Paul Rudd's like, "Well, what do you want to know? Because my dad's a Titanic historian, and so he's like telling DiCaprio all about Titanic." And DiCaprio's like, "I might do this movie." Well, and, and something we discussed on our James Cameron episode with the uh, Jeremy Sisto um, was the. Yeah, Jer- Jeremy Sisto from Clueless was was the finalist for for that role as well. Yeah. So yeah, like Heckerling was asked to write and direct a TV adaptation for the show with some of the original casting on, and uh, it would set her down a very successful path of TV directing for the next twenty years. Yeah. Uh, Heckerling's next film, Loser in two thousand, starring Jason Biggs, uh, would fail to garner much praise or attention. Yeah. Um, it really just kind of overshadowed by the sex romp genre which biggs had helped to usher in a year earlier yeah. and it's it's hard to think of another period in time in film where you know even even in like the 80s when it was just like film is dominated by men like it's hard to think of another period in time when comedy mm-hmm. was just dominated by the male gaze as hard yeah. as it was yeah in like the early 2000s early American to, early, early to, to mid 2000s of just like was it sex drive was that a little bit later like things things of that nature <laughs> yeah. yeah so heckerling's next film uh wouldn't be until 2007 with i can never be your woman um she worked in or 2005 
She worked in TV for another five years or so before submitting a new feature script to Paramount. The script, which is about an older woman raising a teen daughter while falling for a young actor on the TV show she runs, was inspired by her time raising her daughter while working on the Clueless show. Mm -hmm. Um, Paramount, having just lost Sherry Lansing a year earlier as their head, turned down the movie. Uh, Citing concerns, uh, Michelle Pfeiffer was already attached to the script. Mm -hmm. Um, Heckerling had reached out to her and Paramount said Michelle Pfeiffer's too old to lead a rom-com. We're, we're out. The movie eventually made its way to an independent production company that greenlit the film for $25 million, uh, but began pinching pennies almost immediately. They moved the film that was set in L.A. about working in L.A., moved it to London for the tax breaks. Yeah. Um, which is why you see a lot of British actors. It was really weird. Yeah. Cast. Like, I, I was like, why is Graham Norton in this movie? It's like what I thought at one point when he's like playing her like a like costume designer or whatever on the show. Mm-hmm. I was like, I was, and I was like, when did when did Graham Norton have his TV show? Is what I was like looking up. And it came out the same year this movie was released, apparently. So, oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, they also slashed Michelle Pfeiffer's salary um, in exchange. They told her they'd trade her fifteen percent of the gross. Ooh. Um, for a major, major portion of her salary. It ended up being uh, just a million dollars that she made for it. And then without Heckerling's knowledge, the production company sold the theatrical distribution rights to MGM. But MGM, upon purchasing the rights, saw Pfeiffer's deal and uh, elected to not distribute the film in order to not have to pay out any gross to Michelle Pfeiffer. So they just like they bought it and then realized that they would have to pay Michelle Pfeiffer if they released it in theaters. So they said it's not even worth the effort. And um, that's insane. I didn't know that. That's insane. So despite pretty negative feelings, when you when you read interviews with Heckerling about the film, she obviously feels pretty negatively about all of this going down behind her back while working on the film. But um, she she speaks very fondly of the experience overall. She loved her time with Pfeiffer. You know, obviously Rudd was an old friend. This was over 10 years after they had done clueless together and stacy da- stacy dash is also in it too stacy Dash, yeah she rounded like well as sean makes an appearance a, lo- a lot of people she had worked with in the past um she also made one casting choice for the role of her daughter of michelle pfeiffer's daughter in the film um was the feature film debut of a young irish actress named saoirse ronan who who steals the movie like honestly yes, to me, she, absolutely. she steals the movie without even trying it feels like it's kind of crazy and i said i said it has very much ladybird vibes in the movie it's like you have the scene when she's like her her name is izzy and at one point she gets in the car and she's like i want you to call me drew so that's not your name but i'm asking you to call me Drew. i want to be called drew and you're like this is ladybird <laughs> <laughs> and then you have also like a dressing room scene which is also kind of reminiscent of the prom dress scene in a, or dance whatever mm-hmm. I, yeah the prom dress scene in, in Lady Bird, where it's like she's like discussing of how she looks in it and like i'm too i'm too i'm too fat i'm too this i'm too that and she's like i wish i was like you this like skinny hot woman or whatever to, to michelle Pfeiffer, search around and then her like singing like uh moronic her parody of I- mm. ironic i think it's just she's amazing at it she's amazing at it what's wrong why did something have to be wrong okay is such a bitch. She's standing by the snack truck and she tells everyone, I think I'll go out with Dylan. And she knows I love him because Colin told her. So Melanie says, 
Izzy likes him, and she goes, yeah, well, just because Izzy likes him doesn't make them a couple. Do you believe her? She doesn't even like him. She's just jocking me. What's jocking? Copying, and don't put it in your show. Did you tell Katie how you feel? No. Can I change my name to Drew? What's wrong with Izzy? Nothing. Could you just call me Drew from now on? I think it's, here's the thing. I think it's an interesting idea and premise. There's a part to, to kind of pull from how Heckerling uses things from her life. There's a scene early on. It's Paul Rudd's first scene when he kind of gets the audition role and Michelle Pfeiffer looks outside and he's kind of like skipping uh, down the like stairs or whatever. Mm. That apparently happened. She watched Forrest Whitaker after he got the role in Fast Times at Ridgemont High how he walked out like skipping excited that he got the role oh, nice. and they're like that's very different because he's a very big like they're like You're, he's a very big sweet guy but he was cast in, like this like hard-edged like football player mm. um so when watching that i was like oh that's that's that moment from when she saw forrest whitaker get the part uh but paul rudd in this movie it's one of the weirdest things i've ever seen him do i have to be honest <laughs> i and i love paul rudd i don't know what what he was going for i think i think they're trying to actively because in the in the movie you're supposed to kind of question his motives he's he's an actor who's working on her show yeah and you're kind of supposed to be like is he into is he into her is he just trying to like move up in the world yeah and so i think a lot of this movie is paul rudd active paul rudd and heckerling like actively working against his innate charm yeah it (laughs) really is comes off as as like a very weird energy yes he's because he's still kind of doing they're still letting him do his paul rudd thing but then like every once in a while trying to make him be like kind of an asshole Um, i mean that but i mean the jelly bean scene his second scene i was like mm -hmm. what is this like yeah. I'm supposed to like this guy after this scene. It was just and and hate the woman. Like it was so odd. I was like, I don't know how mm-hmm. you can come back from this. Like I'm always oh. gonna be thinking about this scene. But there's 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 a couple of times when it, when the charm just kind of shines through, like the, the the dancing at the club. Yes, um, I think my favorite scene in this movie is when John Lovitz comes over and they're like about to break up <laughs> yes and john lovitz is like no you can't this is the first every boy john lovitz is her ex-husband it's uh, yeah. saoirse ronan's father and this is your first ex-boyfriend i've actually liked i'm trying to be bruce willis here <laughs> <laughs> i mean john lovitz I, for one i don't see how john lovitz and michelle pfeiffer were married at any point in their lives uh as the as the sh- and they had saoirse ronan as the daughter they had doesn't make <laughs> any sense but yeah, Lovitz is fun in this movie. You get good kind of doses of Lovitz where he like constantly is trying to steal stuff at the house when he comes in. He's like, but I I, I mm-hmm. bought this. She goes, no, I paid for it because he goes, oh, and he just would like steal it. Like the Welcome Back Cotter board game. He just like steals because yeah. he really wants it. Oh, man. Uh, and him just like constantly getting sur- like always getting like sur- like either like plastic surgery or whatever to like change his hair change his chin oh i got a chin implant so i don't have to do botox whatever it was um yeah it's just a it's a it's a i I like the idea and the premise of the movie but just something about it where like yeah paul rudd is like supposed to be charming but he's almost just playing like so such broad comedy in like moments that just feels so Mm -hmm. odd like the constant like tripping over things or uh, like trying to do voices and try to like, like, like he kisses the like sensor at one point. Like, it just feels mm-hmm. like it's like it's like he has no filter. If that makes sense, mm-hmm. his character. 
And it just yeah. it just doesn't fully work. Don't let me interrupt. He was just leaving. No, I wasn't. Get out. We are done with this discussion. You can tell when she's really angry. Her voice gets all high and squeaky. Yeah. Look, I'll admit something sketchy's going on. I've never even been in a car with Brianna. But if you don't believe me, we've got serious trust issues. Exactly. I always said that. What has this got to do with you? Only everything. This is the first guy you've dated in 10 years I can actually hang out with. And I do not want you making the same mistakes with him that you made with me. I am trying to be Bruce Willisy. <laughs> Which is weird, because you know, I'm trying to be Ashton. <laughs> Which in turn would make her uh, demi -y. Yeah, or Demi. Or de no, I think Dan. Well, everyone says Demi, but I, I actually matter what. Yeah, I think it's Demi. I, well. She nice? Yeah, she's very nice, but I think she says Demi. She, well, I don't think she cares, actually. Demi. What are you two what? idiots talking about? I am not Demi. You are not Ashton, and you are definitely not Bruce Willis. See how high it gets? Yeah. After my bachelor party, only dogs could hear her. Believe it. It is definitely a far from perfect film, but I, I think it, it it is notable, one, for Saoirse Ronan's debut, and also, two, for kind of what happened to Heckerling with this movie. So when, when it came out, on DVD, um, it, it got fairly decent reviews. Um, one specifically, um, uh, A.O. Scott, the New York Times critic for the New York Times, yeah. was uh, subbing in for Roger Ebert on on Ebert and Roper mm -hmm. the the week that they covered this as a as a DVD debut. And he and he and Roper both spoke up for the film and and said like you know if this had come out in theaters, it would be getting some. But I mean, it's Amy. They were like, it's Amy Hackerling, like yeah she made this movie it's a good cast it's michelle pfeiffer it's you know rom-coms it's 2007 like rom-coms are not doing super well like as far as rom-coms go it's it's worth seeing um but the interesting thing because it even going straight to dvd had a really weird dvd distribution it just was not pushed at all and honestly here's my question so there's a plot line within the film of about kind of Fred Willard's white producer executive being out of touch and also being very lecherous. Yeah, yeah. The company that bought the DVD rights from MGM after MGM decided to screw Michelle Pfeiffer out of her gross percentage was the Weinstein company. Yeah. Uh, and then they decided to shuffle this film off to a very quiet DVD release. Yeah. So it, it really seems like this movie about it being very difficult to be an older woman yeah, yeah. in show business I agree. and also how gross older white men are in show business was was punished by old white men old white, old men. white men in show business yeah fred willard is just like he basically like he forgets that michelle pfeiffer is the one that like breaks paul rudd out on the show mm -hmm. he he's just kind of oblivious and kind of like doesn't give credit to like the to michelle pfeiffer's character ever yeah with what she does there's that one scene with the guy from the the british office and um and pirates of the caribbean where he's just like some producer sitting in the waiting room and like people are reading oh that's a, a list great of scene actresses. he's like hag yeah hag has been it's like all these women like over 40 and then she just like just eats into him so heckerling made one last film after this uh vamps in 2012 is a female vampire comedy starring alicia silverstone and Kristen witter Ritter. It was um it was produced by Ben Stiller's Red Hour production, uh, but they somehow I'm not really sure they just botched a limited theatrical release for this movie. 
Uh, it dropped in limited theaters with almost no marketing, and it opened to five hundred and fifty dollars in its first weekend. Holy, who? Yeah, who? Uh, quickly shuffled off to DVD, despite uh, middle of the road to okay reviews, and um, essentially doomed to anonymity in the wasteland of two thousand twelve DVD releases. And, and that's like that's kind of the the um, the tail end of the DVD run. Like that's yeah, what, if that's it had when, like dropped on Netflix in late 2012, yeah. it might honestly have had a life. But it, it, and if it would have came out five years earlier, maybe it would have mm-hmm. been kind of a fun video, like DVD direct video thing. Because it's a great cast. It's like you got Alicia Silverstone, Kristen Ritter, Sigourney Weaver, Dan Stevens, Malcolm McDowell, Larry Wilmore. So yeah, Gal Gal Garcia Bernal's in it. Like it's a we it's a it's a it's a weird cast. Wallace Shawn, of course, who's in like three of her films. <laughs> yeah. Heckerling's Heckerling's kept busy uh she's done a lot of tv since yeah red, um, red oaks i know she did red oaks yeah if you guys haven't seen red oaks check it out it's on amazon uh it really captures that kind of 80s vibe like and yeah. I, I i can see why heckerling would have been drawn to it because it's that still the thing with red oaks and i've told several people the pilot opens like it's gonna be an 80s like sex romp show mm-hmm. like it's trying to be caddyshack yeah but by the second episode, you're like, oh, this is not what the show is at all. It's trying yeah. to be about real people in the 80s. Yeah. She also wrote the book for a 2017 Broadway musical adaptation of Clueless. She's still working. Um, I don't know if she's necessarily in, in, in movie jail uh, by her own accord. Or if she, she's, she's someone who has kind of flipped back and forth like we've seen through TV and yeah. film her whole career. So. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't write her out just yet, but but you know it's still one of those things, and one of the reasons I've been wanting to talk about her. Like I said, you're, you've got a filmmaker here who has dropped two of the most iconic teen movies, probably of all time. Um, yeah. If you're you know if you're making a list of like high school movies, she's going to be have two in the top ten, and that's um that's that's pretty rare. It is. So I think it's worth acknowledging. I agree, and I also have to give it. You have to give her credit too. Of like she was kind of a. I feel like ahead of the curve on the TV game in a way. Mm-hmm. Cause like you, you look at her, uh, her, um, kind of, uh, output is that she, she has three movies that get TV shows with fast times. Mm-hmm. Look who's talking and clueless. That's a pretty big feat. And that's in the eighties and nineties when like that didn't like, sometimes it happens and it didn't, but to have three, you would think like if 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 you if you can do three movies nowadays and then all of a sudden you get TV shows off of it, you're like a superstar, like mm-hmm. you're you're an honest to god superstar. Brandon, you got some you got some letterbox stats. Oh yeah, your letterbox stats. Okay, so most popular top three most popular. Clueless. Clueless is number one. Fast times. Fast times number two. Really don't know for the third one if the letterbox crowd is watching. Look who's talking. Look who's talking. Number three. Okay. All right. <laughs> Can you guess the bottom three? Vamps. Vamps is third to the lowest. I can never be your woman. That's second to the lowest. Uh, loser? No. Johnny Dangerously? Johnny Dangerously at the bottom. Oh my god. Letterbox. Come on, guys. With only 7,200 7, views. Oh my god. Oh wait, hold on. See, this is what I hate. About, okay, sorry. This is what I hate about Letterbox. sometimes. It does this. It says it's the, it's the lowest one, but it's not. It, it would technically be giant dangerously then vamps then i could ever be your woman Hmm. i don't know i guess i think i think it's they base it off of like how like what has been logged as a diary entry so giant Hmm. angel has probably been logged the least the diary entry but has been seen a little bit more 
So yeah, I can yeah. never be your woman is the lowest at five thousand nine hundred, but not a big gap between that and Giant Dangerously. Um, yeah. All right. So average rating, top three. Clueless. Yep. Fast times. Yep. Look who's talking. No. Johnny Dangerously. Giant Dangerously number three. So they. Hey. <laughs> all right. Okay. It's not a big crowd, but they get but it. They get it. They get it. Um. Bottom three. Uh. Vamps. Yes. I can never be your woman. No. Oh. Okay. People like it. All yeah. right uh loser loser yes and 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 look who's talking to yes again <laughs> look who's talking to all right most appearances i think you already guessed it in pre-show but who's the most appearances i don't know his name but it's the guy that delivers the pizza in yeah. in fast times his name taylor negron uh he is the pizza delivery guy in fast times he's a delivery guy in johnny dangerously he's a mm-hmm. delivery guy in vamps um I think he is in European Vacation as well. Uh, but he's in, I think he's in six of her movies is what it is. I think I counted nice. it up. He's in six of her movies. Uh, Wallace, or, or I think five. Wallace Shawn is like the second one. I think he's in like three or four. There's a couple of guys because the Ray Walston has an appearance in Johnny Dangerously. And then also and the, Fast Times. Yeah. the science teacher from Fast Times has an, is in Johnny Dangerously. He doesn't have a line. Yeah. Um, but it's the scene when they drop the bomb on Maroney's club and Maroney's like, tear down that wall, tear down that wall and tear down that Fargan wall. <laughs> and the guy, the guy he's talking to is the, uh, is the, isn't his name? Vargas? Vargas. Vargas. Yeah. Mr. Vargas. Yeah. 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 Vargas, yeah. yeah. He's also in one flew of the cuckoo's nest is kind of what I, yeah, he's, mm-hmm. yeah, he's big in that. Uh, also Batman returns, not a Michael Keaton film. So there's, Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. There's that. Yeah. Vincent Chevelli is his name. Or was it was his name? He passed away and passed away in 2005. Oh wow, that's it. Lung cancer. Uh, anyway, sorry to go dark with that. Yeah, it's all his stats. So just a couple of questions to round out her episode is: Is Amy Heckerling an auteur? It's a good question. I don't know if I'd say she is, but what I think is interesting about her is that I do think all of her stories have some personal touch to them. Yeah, if that makes sense. And so maybe you can say it's auteur, but I do think I don't know. If, I don't know fully if it is. But I just think there's always this kind of little like, especially in the latter half, like because Fast Times, it's like a lot of people get that kind of like, is it Cameron Crowe? Is it Amy Heckerling? But I think Clueless kind of shows that no, it is. It is like it, it is a good mix of both. Also, I'm I'm always very hesitant to call anyone who works in comedy an auteur because comedy is such a collaborative. I mean, yeah. film as a whole is collaborative, which is why some people don't even like auteur theory at all. But comedy specifically is such a collaborative genre that like we talked about last week with Nancy Myers, you have a lot of stories of people being like Nancy Myers, like knows exactly what she wants yeah. and makes it happen. But that that's pretty rare for comedic filmmakers and Hackerling is someone who who is a very good collaborator. And so so, yeah, she does make a lot of stuff that's really personal and you can kind of see certain things running through, which we can discuss next is kind of one of her running themes. Yeah, I think I think she is a great filmmaker, but yeah, I wouldn't know. I wouldn't want her to be an auteur necessarily yeah. if she's working exclusively in within comedy. Yeah, comedy. Yeah. yeah. So what are what are some of those themes that we picked up on this? Oh week? gosh, well, I feel like you you seem like you're more in tune with the themes than I am because I mean it's definitely it's been interesting kind of going back and learning what we've learned of her life, like like with yeah, uh, look who's talking, kind of seeing seeing how personal some of those stories were, even when we yeah. As the audience didn't, didn't, didn't realize how yeah. personal that they were. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I mean, the big thing is like the easier thing to say the coming of age kind of tale because you have a little bit of like the the of growing up or or adolescence or teenage years with even I could never be your woman. Like that's a big thing. It's like it's mm. about Saoirse Ronan. It, it, it ends up being like kind of about her growing up and how her mom mm-hmm. is se- and seeing it through her mom's eyes essentially. Um, and then with Fast Times is that way and Clueless is that way. Um, so yeah, I I think that's kind of one of the things I picked on is picked up on is kind of the grump. And even to an extent, I mean, go with European Vacation to some extent. Like I think Rusty and Audrey are both like kind of learning about things as they're growing up i mean audrey like her boyfriend breaks up with her when they're in europe mm-hmm. and then yeah rusty is trying to like i mean it's like it's very i mean think about this is that it's a very similar thing audrey when she gets broken up with her boyfriend is somewhat similar to linda getting broken up to in fast times at ridgemont high like because i think mm-hmm. audrey is like very like trying to write him a letter which is what what uh, uh what linda does when she gets broken up with at like when they're at the dance or whatever obviously coming of age i think there's this idea of of always being underestimated no matter what Mm -hmm. her movie's about whether it's it's fast times it's these these like um stacy and and rat kind of coming into their own despite what other people think of them johnny dangerously yeah to an extent off the streets into a gangster you know clueless this idea that the share is constantly being underestimated because of where she's from and her privilege um, and then, you know, even into I Can Never Be Your Woman with her being, you know, th- th- that thing that she she is a successful mm-hmm. producer and yet she still is constantly like belittled and talked down to and underestimated. I would even throw um, out I would even throw out Look Who's Talking because mm-hmm. um, because I think John Travolta is like a cab driver. Yeah. In the first is. one. But like by the end of it, he's a pilot. Like he like works his way up. Like they end up becoming more successful as the series goes on. But like he's kind of looked mm. at kind of as like kind of a kind of a lesser than guy because he's like a, a, just a New York cab driver is what it is. Mm. And I think and 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 um and Molly is an accountant. Uh, Christy Kirstie Alley is an accountant, so a little bit higher up in terms of class. And he all of a sudden like works his way up to being something more through the series. Obviously, we just brought up coming of age as a theme in hers. Like what what genre would you say does Amy Heckerling. Yeah, she she's probably the one that we talk about the most. It doesn't really fit into a specific niche genre uh, with all of her films. Like you could say coming of age in a way, um, but she is. It's like broadly she is in comedy, yeah. but I, I it's like she's is she a, like is she a parody director because of Johnny Dangerously? she has one film but she doesn't have multiple films <laughs> romance kind of elements in a lot of the films if it's look who's talking if it's i can never be your woman if it's even loser clueless to an extent um so yeah she's she's kind of all over the map i mean everything's been a comedy that's the thing is that everything's been a comedy she has done her most dramatic work is fast times probably honestly when you look at mm-hmm. it that's the one that's the most kind of uh looking at issues like kind of diving into issues they're a little bit more uh relevant at the time than some of her later stuff so we're with that we're wrapping up a a exhausting <laughs> month, but um, it's been great watched yeah. some, some very different genres but um you know all filmmakers you and i have really always appreciated and, and i i really liked this opportunity to, to dive deeper into their works and also dive into i, I think you know without doing 
this layout of this month, we wouldn't have been able to see how similar the stories as far as like well, productions yeah, yeah. go <laughs> and, yeah. and kind of all th- all four of these women facing kind of similar obstacles when it comes to making these films and even like Ryan thing uh, one thing i went m- mentioned earlier but like uh, oh like kind of like things they're interested like the things they're interested in is very similar in some way um but like even like we talked about last week how like nancy myers was heavily influenced by the graduate and that's what she wanted to make films but when you look at i can never be your woman there's like graduate graduate references all throughout as as well and you wonder if like that was a big influence on on a uh, heckerling um mm. and that's but that movie comes out at a time when when both myers and heckerling are growing up uh in the 60s um but yeah it's like everything's there are they've been similar kind of trajectories all with different kind of outcomes and what they do you have one that's like say nancy myers who's this like complete massive success in terms of financial world but isn't really looked at critically in a nice way but then you have deborah granick who's the opposite who's critically beloved but doesn't do big numbers financially but they all have Mm. the specific things they're interested in in some way so yeah it's been it's been it's been a very enlightening month i feel like it's been a quick month weirdly even though we've watched (laughs) so many movies it might be because because you you did you did two you you wrote two of the episodes basically so how how did you feel sad side thing how did you feel about doing these two director stuff because you never done director episodes that you like yeah it's a it's a lot of content a lot of content <laughs> to get through but uh yeah i'm definitely looking forward to a couple of weeks of one movie, one movie yeah one movie at a time same same it's gonna be fun uh but yeah so we talked about female filmmakers this month were there any that we didn't discuss and hopefully we can discuss in the future that you want to showcase yeah uh we we brought up Greta Gerwig this yeah. this episode. Greta Gerwig is someone that I, I have loved her two films. Both of them have just been just spot on. Uh someone who who's who's brought up uh we, we did kind of a, a questionnaire a couple weeks ago and, and, and someone who's brought up a lot who I think has had a very interesting career is Ava DuVernay. Yeah. And and that speaks directly to I think there's a there's this very specific I idea of of sometimes directors get looked down upon when they make kind of like a like a very honest raw first movie and then go into go into like big genre stuff and i and i always appreciate when when they when those directors are kind of open about like hey yeah it's not just a paycheck like yeah we all got into filmmaking to make something and like i like the idea of a blockbuster and so i think that's something that happened with ava duvernay specifically with selma and then going into a wrinkle in time and wrinkle in time kind of not getting very good reviews but she's someone who's still been a very prolific yeah. producer and tv, of TV too. and yeah. film yeah. as well and and i just appreciate you know uh it's kind of yeah I, I appreciate someone being open like hey i love big and she's she's someone who's has been open with their love of like big blockbusters yeah. and she's like i want to i want to have a go at them so um you know i'm, I'm glad that she has been able to not get stuck in movie jail too long I, and i mean she she hasn't really had like a big film that she's directed since but but she's been able to kind of keep her momentum going as far as tv and and producing goes with queen sugar with when they see us was the big kind of the big thing mm-hmm. um yeah she's active is 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 the key thing yeah some people i love i mean i think someone that's a little bit older i mean i, I like kind of um uh elaine may stuff i think is amazing mm-hmm. um someone like agnes farda i think at uh, penny marshall we did a thing i i really enjoy, i really love penny marshall's work i know we've talked about league of their own here before but i also really love 
uh, big. I love Awakenings. I even have a soft spot for something like Riding in Cars of Boys, also with Brittany Murphy in it, but also my man Steve's on giving a a, a great performance. Um, but yeah, it's there's there's a lot of talented ones coming up. I think of uh, is it Muriel Heller uh, who did a, mm-hmm. a King Ever Forgive Me and um, a Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, also acted in Queen's Gambit. I forgot she's she's her like adopted mom in queen's gambit oh and is really yeah a great so a really good actor and a director and writer into a uh, diary of a teenage girl um so that yeah so there's a lot of people like that who have done like the three or four movies that are kind of still just like need something to kind of like boost them up into a larger uh, a larger yeah. kind of platform and obviously a lot of, a lot of attention this past year for chloe Zhao, um and she'll have giant marvel movie coming which is yeah this year as, as someone who, who who has kind of kept up with her career over the past couple of years when they announced that I, it was mind-blowing but like yeah. i said i i always appreciate someone especially someone who's got as much of a kind of naturalistic eye as she does uh giving it a go so uh, all the best really really got my fingers crossed for her on this yeah one. I, I i it'll be interesting because that that'll open up i think if that does well which i hope it does it, it'll open up a lot of doors for uh for female filmmakers on that large of a scale and we're and we're we're, mm-hmm. we're slowly moving towards that so i guess thomas final question is like what what did you learn during this month i want to say that the lesson is that it's harder for women in hollywood because we already we already knew that but um but it has been wild especially that Especially that just seeing the way things play out in post like every single time. It's like these studios being like, hey, you just had a really good movie. We've got a lot of faith in you. And then it just seems like it happens so more often with female filmmakers that when it comes to post, they're like, all right, you're you're out of this. We're cutting it. We don't care what you have to say. And um, yeah, it's 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 tough. It's real tough. And um, and and like we've kept saying, it, it just makes it more apparent how much more of a luxury it is that a lot of these male filmmakers have an ability like, like Tarantino does to say like, this is my, these are my 10 films. Yeah. And this is, this is exactly what I wanted to them to be like. It just doesn't obviously doesn't play out for that, like that for, for most filmmakers. But, but we've, we've seen through this month that even if you've got kind of a lot of buzz and you're coming into it as like one of the hot filmmakers in town, for some of these women it just that doesn't matter that that still doesn't help you get like what you want made the way that you want it made the exceptions are someone like nancy myers or penny marshall is is like because it's like if you have big huge hits as you said with talking about with amy hackerling that she won the the guy the the man hit of like hundreds of millions of dollars is that if you do that multiple times you get a little bit of autonomy and kind of kind of control and Nancy Myers kind of had that. I mean, with six of her films, five of them go over a hundred million dollars. And, and there, I don't know if there's another film, female filmmaker that's had that type of a run. Um, mm-hmm. So, so yeah. Um, and another one we didn't mention was like Catherine Bigelow. That's like a big one that kind of fits into that too, of like, she has had success, but has, has done it within like kind of the more male dominated genre sometimes. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, it's like, but yeah, even like I said, going back to Julie Taymor with the Crossing Universe, just how that post-production process that that kind of studios and producers, and even with I Can Never Be Your Woman with this kind of release schedule for Michelle Pfeiffer, uh, is like how people like want to kind of control what happens after they so they had faith in it. But yeah, that's been that's been our month. 
of female filmmakers. I hope you, we hope you enjoyed it. Um, next month, still in the, still in the planning process, but we're doing a kind of defining a genre, I guess you could say next month. We're doing, <laughs> we're doing Southern films. Cause I pitched and they're like, what does that mean? And I think we're going to try to define it for you guys for Southern films next month, uh, for September and kind of dive into kind of like what it is to be Southern and kind of the culture of the South, but also the different pockets of the South as well. How it's not all, it's not just a, uh, um, I guess a monolith of, of a single train of thought, um, or single, a single kind of landscape. It's a very, uh, broad and, and full of variety, uh, and culture. So that's next month. So be ready, be prepared. Um, but that's all you have. We have for you on this episode. Make sure you subscribe to the Nation Podcast and our podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever your podcast. And if you haven't already, make sure you write us review on whatever platform you listen to the show on. You know, any feedback we can get from you guys helps us out as far as planning goes, as far as how what we're doing on the show, and it also boosts, like we said, our visibility. So you know, get the spread the word, social media, leaving reviews, anything like that is just going to get more eyes and ears on this podcast. Yeah. And tell us if you're watching movies that we are, we're kind of talking about that you've never seen before. Tell us what you think of them. We want to hear what you got to say. If, if you took one of our recommendations, because um, we like introducing new films to people's kind of life. And also, if you haven't already, make sure you like us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all that jazz. And Thomas, as always, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. And thank you all for listening. We hope you listen to more episodes soon. Bye. Bye.